Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We are a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Today I want to talk to you about the Great Commandment. Everybody knows what the Great Commandment is, but I want to kind of focus in on that just a little bit and uh, just share a few thoughts on that because Jesus came up, or, or, or Jesus got not caught up in the thinking, but had to teach on this thinking in the context of a Pharisaical system where people were really focused on the behavior modification of people and getting people to obey a whole bunch of laws. And we as pastors are generally pretty guilty of that. We highlight aspects of God's Word that place emphasis on spiritual disciplines. Like we say, you really should read your Bible. And that's a good thing. And you really should pray. And you really should come to church and be together with the body. And you really should give and be generous. And there's so many aspects of the Word of God that we focus on and we teach on. And rightly so, because they're good and they're necessary and they enable us to express our faith and our devotion to God, but while they're all necessary, if these works and these disciplines are not cocooned within a loving relationship with God, they actually mean very little. They actually serve to harden our hearts rather than be an expression of the love we experience between God and us. In other words, instead of coming out of the overflow of deep relationship, They actually sit as religious duties, as things we have to do, and it actually gets to the point where in our own thinking, we feel that if we don't do them, God is displeased with us. And if we do do them, somehow we can crowbar God's favor in our lives. And that's just a completely wrong way of thinking. And this is where Jesus highlights the great commandment, which in their way of thinking in the time and season, as well as in ours, is... In our, in our minds, we all understand, love the Lord your God as the great commandment. We, we get that, but yet, just like they did, we get caught up in the stuff as the means for the great commandment, where in fact, it's not. It should be the overflow of the great commandment. So I wanted you to ask, well, we'll have it on our, on our screens here. You're welcome to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, and I'm going to read to you from verse 28. Mark chapter 12 verse 28. And here Jesus has been having a discussion with the Sadducees who are religious rulers. In fact, there's two portions we're going to read. The one, Jesus having an argument with the Pharisees. The other one, this one, he's having a a discussion with the Sadducees. Just so you understand what that means, and I find a fun way of remembering it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were both were both Jews, and they, but they had different ways of thinking about eternal life. The Pharisees believed that there was life after death. That's why they were called the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they could see beyond life on earth. The Sadducees, however, did not believe in life after death. And that's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> so here, yeah, Mark twelve twenty eight says, Then one of the scribes came, having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Let's understand what he's asking. He's not asking the first numerically. He's asking, what is the most significant commandment of all? It happens to be the first, but there's nuance in what he's asking. 
And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. It is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So in essence, what Jesus is doing here is he's talking to a situation where they're saying, oh, you know, it's not about the giving or the sacrifices or the feasts and the festivals are all things that are enshrined within your culture. But above all of those things, the preeminent commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 32, so the scribe said to him, well said, teacher. I like this guy. He commends Jesus. Well done. I see potential in you. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, all the understanding, all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than the, all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, David alludes to something like this as well in his Psalms where he says, Offerings and sacrifices you do not desire, but a broken and a contrite heart. What is a broken and a contrite heart? It is a heart that, that, is, that is open to love. <laughs> what is it that truly breaks our hearts? The things that break your hearts are the things where, that your love is wrapped around. You won't suffer a broken heart for something you lose that you did not love. But when your heart is wrapped around something, that's when your heart is broken. So this, in essence, is, is drawing even from that. Verse 34, now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, this is incredible, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared to question him. So let's look at a few things that Jesus said. First of all, he said, love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all of your strength. I don't know about you, do you find that a little intimidating? (laughs) In other words, that leaves room for nothing else. It means everything. It's not like half-hearted or love the Lord with all your, go- all your heart and some of your mind and a bit of your strength. It's an all-encompassing love. In other words, everything you've got is what it's really trying to say. And this is why it's called the first and the great commandment, because it is all-encompassing. Every other commandment fits into this one and is an expression of this one. In fact, in Matthew 10, 37, Jesus said that if you love anything more than me, you're actually not worthy of me. Because that love for anything over and above Jesus undermines the very first commandment, the very principle of everything. Which means, if that's not in its rightful place, everything else loses its, it loses its significance and loses its reward. It's a love that holds nothing back. And it comes as a result of our love for God. The ability to not hold back, the ability to give freely, to give completely, is the result of a love that I have for God. And at at times, especially towards the end of my message, we will liken this to uh, just a normal human relationship, because sometimes that's easier for us to understand. You know, when I married my wife, the two became one. What's hers is mine, And what's mine is mine. 
and oh, so and what's mine is hers. And it's an order. It's a holding nothing back. In fact, when we talk about doing marriage counseling, some people come into a marriage and they think a marriage is 50-50. And if it's a little, uh, if one is giving 60 and 40, it's not fair. You got your ratios completely wrong because a marriage is 100% and 100%. And it's only in that scenario where a marriage truly works, where someone is 100% devoted and 100% given to the other. And that's the same as what we're talking about here. He then goes on to say, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says to this man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, you are not far from understanding and experiencing what it's all really about. What I find interesting, and the thing that kind of dropped in my heart as we were, as I was thinking about this and meditating about on, on, this, on this principle is, very often when we talk about the love of God, we talk and we think in terms of a lovely, fluffy feeling of being loved, of knowing that we matter, of knowing that we are valued, and all of that is true. But what's really interesting for me is that these are not divine suggestions. This is not the great encouragement. Jesus is setting, he's drawing a line in the sand, if you like. He's setting a pretext for everything else that he's going to say. Everything else needs to fit within the understanding of the commandment that if you want to follow me, you need to love me with all your heart all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. It is the commandment and not just a suggestion. And so we see a very similar discussion taking place in Matthew chapter 22, and I want to go there now from verses 34 to 40. And now the Pharisees are questioning Jesus. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, "'Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law?' Now, let's understand again what's happening here. What is the motive? They're trying to catch him out on what parts of the law he favors over others. Because different rabbis and different Pharisees would place emphasis in different places. And Jesus says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. In other words... Every other requirement for salvation, every other requirement to live a life, a godly life, a life in the favor of the Lord, is wrapped up and fulfilled in these two. I mean, think about it just very simply and very logically. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to murder him, you're not going to steal from him, you're not going to cover his possessions, yet you're going to be happy for God's blessing on his life. Love motivates all the other laws. And that's just the Ten Commandments I was referring to. But in both passages, Jesus effectively says, there's no other commandment greater than these. And so, or as a result of that, you and I ought to focus more on this part of our spiritual journey above all others. Think about that for a moment. You know, when we read and when we study the Word of God, there's many themes that we can follow. Maybe you believe in God for healing or a financial breakthrough. Maybe there's parts of your character that you're wanting to work on. All of those things need to come second place. The most important thing in your quiet time, when you're reading, in our prayer life, in our devotional life, is our love for God. Is centering ourselves again and again and narrowing that distance. Again, the marriage example, one of the, the greatest um, 
pieces of advice in terms of marital counseling that I once heard and I often use and I say to people is, from the moment most of us, my wife and I work together, but most of us, from the moment we leave our front doors at, 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 in the morning, we are, we are drifting apart from each other. I'm having experiences and my wife is having experiences and then we come together again at the end of the day and there's a whole lot of stuff that has happened, not just natural things, but emotional things that have happened. You've had conversations that have maybe hurt you or blessed you or moved you. Things have happened, good things, bad things. And the whole idea uh, for those who want to have a, a, a good, strong, intimate relationship is that they pay attention to closing that gap. They get together and they sit and they talk and they share, this is what happened to me today. This is how I felt when so-and-so did that. And when that happens, that gap is constantly being closed. And it's the same thing with God. Of course, He's present with us always. There's no gap physically, and we can keep closing that gap throughout the day because He's always there. I just call to say. And the point is that we, we, you and I, as followers of Jesus, amidst the myriad of things that we really could focus on, all of which are important, there is none that is more important than the state of our hearts, our love relationship with God, and our love relationship with others. So in other words, we can do all kinds of good things, and if we miss this, we've missed it all. If we miss this thing, nothing else matters. Let me demonstrate it to you from Jesus' own mouth. Matthew 7, 21 to 30, 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Yeah, let's just pause for a moment. What is the will of my Father? Love. That's where it starts and that's where it ends. It's worked out in many different ways, but that's the beginning and that's the end. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, but we've prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name and we did all these wonders and these miraculous works in your name and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now that's really interesting. The key is the last four words, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, you live in a way that undermines God's law of love. When we read the book of Corinthians, Paul is correcting a church that is flowing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's all kinds of manifestations going on and wonderful things, and people are being healed and people are being set free. But when he writes to them, he says, there's, there's, there's strife among you guys. You're behaving like children. You've missed the point. When he writes to them about communion and having communion together, which is what we're going to do just now, he says, I... I, I, I I want to um, commend you in the things that you're doing, but actually I can't. Because when you come together, it's actually for the worse, not for the better. Imagine your pastor was to stand up and say, you know what, you'd actually be better blessed if you didn't come to church. And that's what Paul is saying here. Because there's such a lot of mess going on with you. And so in other words, what has happened? They lost sight of the main thing. They focused on the gifts. They were focused on manifestations. They were focused on doing good things. But they left that law of love behind somewhere along the way. You see, your actions are undermined by a lack of genuine love for God. Well, let me put it this way. Your love for God is undermined. What you think is your love for God is what Jesus is saying here, by your actions and the way that you go about living your life and doing the work of the kingdom even. 
The evidence is that we become self-seeking, we become self-absorbed, and we lack genuine, sacrificial love for others. We become so wrapped up in the stuff, wrapped up in our work, wrapped up in the stuff we consider to be important, that we lose sight of the value of every single person that God brings us into contact with every single day. Now, we all know that Jesus demonstrated what this kind of love looked like. And so let's just delve in there a little bit. First place I want to start is Matthew 5, 17. New Living Translation. Jesus says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. What was their purpose? To bring us into the likeness of God. Jesus was the incarnate love of God. Amen? God is love. The Bible doesn't say God has love. The Bible says God is love. And so Jesus was love incarnate. He came to live and to show what love truly looks like. And he found his fulfillment as a man in giving himself away completely. In living a life that was abandoned of his own will. It's not that Jesus didn't have a will. It's just that Jesus constantly said, I live to do the will of my Father. And we even know in Gethsemane, when he prayed, he said, God, if there's any other way that this can be done, please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' love, his life was lived of giving itself away. And that's why they call the Easter celebration, that's why they call Jesus going to the cross the passion. Because it was a passionate love for you and for me and a passionate love for God the Father that Jesus submitted his life to be crucified. Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, you don't take my life from me, no matter what your verdict is, because I lay my life down. I give it freely. And that's what love looks like. We know, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave. That's what love does. It gives, and it gives, and it gives, and it gives, seeking nothing in return. Love finds its fulfillment in giving itself away. Love for God causes us, like Jesus, to give up our own way, our own opinions, our own rights, laying them down and saying, God, what would you have me do? How would you glorify yourself in and through my life? And likewise, love for others causes us to lay down our will. It's amazing that the only time I fight with my wife is because she refuses to lay down her will. And also, of course, I love poking fun at her, but it's fine. The only time I have fights with my wife is when I refuse to lay down my will. Amen? Husband's like, ah, come on. But it's true. When there's someone who's willing to lay down what they want, how they feel, there's no argument. It takes two to fight. Did you know that? Love is costly, folks. Separate evangelist J. John says, We have a God who loves, therefore we have a God who who suffers. Isn't that beautiful? It's so true when you look at the life of Jesus. The marvel 
for me of God's great love is that when he suffers, he suffers with joy. Love takes the sting out of the sacrifice. You know, there's one thing about me not getting my own way. Fine, we'll do it your way. But there's no love in that. There's no joy in that. Michael, will you please do the dishes? Fine, I'll do the dishes. No love in that. But there's great love when she comes home and the dishes are done. And I didn't have to be asked. Let's look again at the life of Jesus. Hebrews 12, verse 2, the second part of the verse from the Passion Translation says this, because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you would be his, he endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation and now sits exalted at the right hand of God. New King James says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Isn't that what love does? It says, for your sake and because of my love for you and my desire to, to be intimate in relationship with you, I will lay these things down. I will do whatever it takes. I will pay, pay the price and I will do it with joy and I will do it with gladness and I won't make you feel guilty about it and I won't use it to manipulate you and I won't bring it up again and again and again and again. I will just give freely because I love you. You see, God does not love us because we are valuable, folks. We are valuable because God loves us. Isn't that amazing? And anybody else in your life, that same principle applies. God's love for us determines our value, and He demonstrated the greatness of that love through the price that He paid. The same principle is true. My love for God determines His value in my life. Even though He is God Almighty, many people live as though God is nothing. They deny His very existence. He carries no value in their hearts. Why? Because they have no love for Him. And similarly, my love for others and for those around me determines their value in my life. I demonstrate their value by the way I love them. You see, if you view somebody with love, you will treat them as valuable. That is why in my prayer room, I have pictures of you up on my pin board so that I can look at you and love you and pray over you. Not just look at you and pray over you, because let me be honest with you, when I look at you and pray over you, my heart isn't moved. When I look at you and I love you and I pray for you, something very different happens. And very often we want to look at those around us and do things for them. We want to look at the situations that we're facing and get involved in them. But then we're getting, we're not putting the first thing first. We're getting caught up in the stuff again. But when I look at you, and in my heart I first love you, and then I go about what I'm doing, the way I do it completely changes. My motive in it completely changes. I want to tell you the fruit of it completely changes. God's love is the most important and most empowering thing in the world. 
And this is why God commands us to love Him and to love others. Love is sacrificial. Love is costly. Love is uncomfortable. Amen? Amen. It adopts a position that serves the needs of others at the expense of self. This world will tell you, no, you've got to look after yourself first. I just don't see that in here. I don't see that anywhere in here. God commands us to put others first. Consider them better than ourselves. What does that mean? More important. Their needs more important. Their vision more important. And to serve them. And He will make up the difference. As believers, you and I are called into this uncomfortable, joyous love. John 13, 34 to 35 from the message says, let me give you a new command. So Jesus now, when he's about to leave his disciples, he says, you know the great commandment, love the Lord your God and and love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then he says this, love one another, not as you love yourself, but he takes it to another level. As I have loved you, love one another. And this is how people will recognize that you are my disciples when they see you love one another. Again, we think people will recognize our Christianity and they will flock to God because we preach at them, because we send them a Bible verse, because we send them texts, because we're working in powerful miracles, because we're singing great, wonderful songs to God. Jesus actually says none of that. He says, the thing that separates you and that defines you as my disciple is that you love. And people can see your love. They can sense love. Because they feel valued when they're in your presence. I feel valued when I'm in God's presence. No matter what I've done, no matter what I've been through, I know that I can come and I can sort that stuff out with Him and be with Him because He gave His life for me. That cross is the symbol of the value God has placed on relationship with me. And it's the price that God, it's the symbol of the price that God has paid for relationship with you. Christianity is not about going to church. Careful, Pastor. It's not about reading your Bible. It's not about praying your prayers. It's not about singing your songs. It is about a love for God that enables the love of God to work in me and through me. And it is my love for God that brings me here to fellowship with you. You think you don't feel like getting out of bed on a Sunday. Do you know what time I get out of bed on a Sunday? Do you think I feel like it? Yes. Confession. There are days I would like to go for a nice breakfast at a winery somewhere. On a Sunday morning. But you know what? This is more important. It's not that there aren't other things in our lives, folks. It's not that God is against you having a lovely job and a nice car or a nice house and having joy and fulfillment in people and in things, but not before Him. And you will find that all of those things provide a measure of fulfillment that is hollow that yields no real lasting satisfaction. But yet, when we put the first things first, all of those things just...
there's a joy in them, an appreciation, and a gladness. Let me start rounding up. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 to 3. I'm going to read it from the Passion Translation because it just puts it really nicely. We're talking about doing the stuff versus beginning with love. And this is what 1 Corinthians 13 says. If I were to speak with eloquence in earth's many languages and in the heavenly tongues of angels, yet I didn't express myself with love, my words would be reduced to a hollow sound of nothing more than a clanging cymbal. And if I were to have the gift of prophecy with a profound understanding of God's hidden secrets, and if I possessed unending supernatural knowledge, and if I had the greatest gift of faith that could move mountains but never learned to love, then I am nothing. And if I was to be so generous as to give away everything I own to feed the poor and to offer my body to be burned as a martyr without the pure motive of love, I would gain nothing of value. So here's the essence that I think we all need to be reminded of from time to time, and that's really what I'm doing. I've been challenged about this this week, and I know and I'm trusting that you will be challenged about this as well. Loving God is the chief thing. It is more important than your job. No matter how much time that needs from you, it's more important. It's more important than your marriage. It's more important than your reputation. It's even more important than what you do for God or give to God. In fact, loving God is what gives meaning to your job. It's what brings joy and peace into your marriage. It's what makes you stand out as a disciple of Jesus, and it's the very reason for your existence. What's that thing, Siobhan? You know what I'm talking about where they decided years ago, the chief end of man, what did they call that? Sorry? The Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? In other words, the purpose of man. The chief end of man is to love God and enjoy Him forever. Isn't that beautiful? That's how they summed up this book. The chief end of man. What is this all about? Why are you and I here? What are we created for? To love God and enjoy Him forever. Now I want to read to you I was going to say one more, but I see I've got some more notes here. Where are we? I want to read to you one portion of Scripture where Jesus is writing a letter in the book of Revelation to the church of Ephesus. And He's writing a letter of commendation to them, but also a letter of correction to them. And this is what He says. Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. Again, I'm reading from the Passion Translation. Jesus says to this church, I know what you've done for me. You've worked hard and you've persevered. Wouldn't you feel chuffed if Jesus stood before you this morning and says, I know what you've done for me. You've worked hard and you've persevered. In other words, I acknowledge what you've done. I know that you don't tolerate evil. You've tested those who claimed to be apostles and proved that they are not. They were imposters. I also know how you gave, oh sorry, how you've bravely endured trials and persecutions because of my name and yet, you've not become discouraged. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the passionate love you had for me at the beginning. Think about how far you've fallen. Think about, in other words, how you've made all these other things more important than your personal love and worship of me. 
Repent and do the works of love you did at first. Folks, repentance is simply the recalibration of what you treasure. Write that down and think about that one. Repentance is simply the recalibration of what you treasure. You will always pursue what you treasure. Your heart will always gravitate towards that you treasure. Your finances, your resources, your time, your energy, your gifts will always go towards that which you treasure. And so repentance is simply the changing or the recalibration of what you treasure. And Jesus is saying that to these disciples here. Recalibrate where, you've, where you are placing your emphasis. What is the things that you and I did at first? Again, let's talk about a natural relationship. You know what? When Heather and I first began to enter into a relationship, because we were friends for years before there were sparks, but you know what? When sparks began to fly, you know what the, the first thing that I did? You know what the first work is that I did? I showed an interest. You see, even in that commandment, it's not, I bought her flowers, or I did the thing, or I paid, you know, hours of phone bills to speak to her. It's not about the stuff. The first work is I showed an interest. What is the thing? The first work, if God is calling us back to first works, He's saying, show an interest in me. Show an interest in me, Michael, in spending time with me on what's on my heart. You know, with Helen, it was showing an interest. It, it means she was in the forefront of my mind. It means I paid attention to everything that she said because now I want to know what this girl likes and what she doesn't like because I know what to do and want to know what to avoid. I try to help her. I try to bless her. You know, when you first met the love of your life, suddenly your calendar had big gaps in it that were never there before. You were always too busy for everything else, but now, somehow, there was space because I made it. I found the time. You know what else? You were affectionate and you were kind and you said nice things to her. I really like your hair like that. Such a pretty blouse you're wearing. And nothing, I mean nothing, was too much trouble. Nothing. Oh, I left this at home. I'll go fetch it for you. I don't need it for a week. Doesn't matter. I'll go get it. Anything. Anything. Didn't matter what. That's what it means to return to the first, the things that you did at first. To pay attention. To show an interest. To express affection. To acknowledge their affection. God's affection. It's exactly the same with him. And I want to say to you that if you perhaps struggle, where do I start? How do I get back to that? How do I, what is, for me, what is one of the, the most powerful recalibration techniques or pointers? I believe one of the things that melts our hearts again and again and again, that turns our hearts back to Jesus comes from a revelation that is led from our initial conversion but continues today. It's a realization of His love and what you and I have been forgiven of. What blows my mind about the love of God is what He was willing to overlook when He looked at me. 
Bible says love covers the multitude of sins. Romans uh, 2 verse 4b, the second part of Romans 2 verse 4, says, Do you realize that all the wealth and the extravagance of kindness from God to us is meant to melt your heart and lead you to repentance? Remember the price that was paid to you. Sometimes in my quiet times, when I think of God's love for me, I am blown away not by the fact that He loves because He is love. I am blown away by the fact that He loved me despite everything that was going on in my heart, despite my indifference, despite my sin, despite the way I treated other people, despite the rubbish that I knew was going on in there. He loved me anyway. And He calls me and says, I sent my son to pay the price for those things so that you and I can be together forever. It reminds me of the last verse of the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, written by Stuart Townsend. It says this, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death, and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I can't give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. That's what love looks like. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, Come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.